want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 39. Altitude. Altitude. Tower 26 is really you, runway 6,000 In the military that I saw that was kind of like with all the metal that was flying through the air. And I mean, a lot of metal. I think that there were over, they counted over like 900 RPG uh, explosions. I mean, just to give you an idea of like, you know, the scope of how big something was. Um, just with the amount of stuff that was flying around, the fact that more guys lived than what, you know, did the fact that, you know, there were like 70 out of the Rangers. I think the Rangers probably had a hundred guys on the ground that day. I think there were 77 purple hearts. Jeez. No, maybe 115 Rangers, something like that. So, you know, the fact that like all the stuff that was flying around that, you know, could have hit and, and it kind of solidified something in my mind, which is like, when it's your time, it's your time. And yeah, sure, you can make mistakes that leave you exposed or, you know, whatever it might be. You can, um, but yeah, but there's just such a randomness to it, you know? Boom. Welcome to the podcast and thanks for listening in. That clip is from my guest today, Brad Thomas, and he's talking about the Battle of Mogadishu. He spent 20 years in the Army, 12 years in Delta. He's one of the founding members of Silence and Light. It's a band of all veterans where all their proceeds go to sporting veterans charities. We're going to talk about that today. Despite the fact that I call it Silence and the Light, for some reason, I'm not very smart. And again, that's challenging, but Silence and Light, you can find them over at silenceandlightmusic.com. And you can find Brad, He's pretty predominant on Instagram, Brad Thomas underscore official. If you're looking for some additional content or just more info about Brad and silence and light. So there you have it. With that being said, again, just a few admin notes. Keep it short and sweet. As always, thank you to my Patreon supporters for supporting the podcast. You guys and gals make it all possible. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can swing over to patreon.com backslash the afterburn podcast where additional content lives and all Patreon supporters get early access to episodes that are ad-free. And I'd also like to thank all of you who've uh, stopped by iTunes and dropped a rating review or wherever you listen to your podcast. But iTunes is definitely the biggest platform for this podcast. So if you spent the 10 seconds to leave a rating and review, I'm greatly appreciative. If you haven't, as always, I ask you please take just a few seconds, drop over to iTunes and leave a rating or review. That being said, let's get into the podcast with Brad. I did hit yeah, record. We're going in three places, so. 
Yeah, there's 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 a magic that sometimes happens, and if you miss it, uh, we notice the same thing with music. And uh, when the tune's on the first album, Silence and Light, the actual song, Silence and Light, uh, we were in North Carolina, and Jason Neverman, one of my bandmates, did this. He had a delay pedal, and on a delay pedal, like the rate, you could speed up, right? And so we would, he would speed up and speed up as he was just sitting there. The song was building. And it sped up to the point where it sounded like crickets chirp. And we were like, oh, dude, it's like this audible, as we're just kind of like letting this song feel while we're playing it live, like one of the very first times ever. And so we got this cricket background noise and we could never capture it again. So we had it recorded. This was just rehearsal. We had it recorded. And I sent that track. I was able to get that track isolated from our rehearsal studio, send it to the producer, but couldn't make it work on the album recording because we could never replicate it again. Like it just, oh. just happened. So instead I had a producer sample night sounds, you know, like cricket night sounds off of some plugin. And that's what we use for the song. <laughs> You yeah, gotta be creative, but man, it's like when those moments happen, it's so frustrating if you lose it to something like that, you know? Yeah. What kind of plane I had a, uh, this is just totally out of nowhere, but as you were talking about like I ejecting and everything else, I went to a survival school in Spokane, Washington. Okay. And, you know, for people that don't know the army has you know, seer level C and that's very much like a, a product of Vietnam and it's a special forces, uh, run school, but it's pretty violent. You know, you get captured, they, they teach you all these things. And then at the very end, they put you through like a, you know, eight day survival and evasion. And that turns into a 36 hour detention which is very, you know, Vietnam POW style thing and interrogations and things like that. But I went to one in Spokane, Washington, when I was in uh, OTC for Delta Force, so the operator okay. training course. And I had been to this school before from Ranger Recon. And the instructors there didn't know that. They didn't like run my social to see and I was actually using all the techniques that I had been taught. And they're like, what the fuck is this guy? Like they can't break rule. <laughs> what the fuck is this guy's deal? And I'm sitting there being interrogated. They sent me up and up like, let's pretend you're on TV and we're interviewing you. We're the bad guys. They're like, they're not telling me this, just living this, you know, scenario. And one of the guys asking me questions was Scott O'Grady. Really? Yeah. And I'm looking at the guy and I'm going, I know you from somewhere. Where do I know yeah. you from? And I'm using all these techniques and everything else. And all of a sudden, one of the instructors comes around the corner and he goes, Hey, you come here. And I was like, wow, they're breaking roll with me. This is crazy. And so Scott O'Grady gets up and this guy, they pull me around the corner and they're like, have you been here before? And I'm like, yeah. And so they asked me my social and my full name because they didn't have my name right. They were also training their interrogators to try and figure out who we were and all that stuff. So anyway, I'm, I'm talking with the two of them and I was like, 
nice and Scott. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and I realized, like, oh, he's that guy that shot down the Verbosnia. And, you know, did a little... What, what year was that that you went to uh, oh, that year? So that would have been, I think, 98, either yeah. 99. I went the first time in, I think, 96 or 97. So I'd only been like a year, two years prior. That's funny that, um, so I went through the same SEER program there, the three-week course, you know, you learn how to survive out in the wilderness and then you have to evade. And then surprise, surprise, no matter if you successfully evade, you get captured. You go to the camp, spend a couple of days at the camp. Um, I also got to go through advanced beatings, which I'm sure you did a few of those, which was always, that was, that was entertaining. We actually did that at our fighter squadron, which was unique in itself because it was kind of a non-standard deal. But Scott O'Grady, that's one of those guys. There's there's two scenarios now at Sears School they go through. I mean, there's multiple ones, but one is F-117 that got shot down in Bosnia. And that dude, like he was in his shoot, he was on his radio, he did everything by the book, and he got picked up in a matter of like 45 minutes. And then Scott O'Grady, he spent a little bit of time on the ground. So I'm sure he had a few lessons learned to to share and impart on everyone. Yeah, yeah. It was just interesting because it wasn't, you know. Definitely, he and I, at assist interrogation is happening in training where they can't break the role, and we're both trying to let it figure it out. And uh, it was just it's hilarious. So I was thinking, oh, they're going to pull me out of that scenario now because I've already been in. <laughs> and so the whole rest of the time, which was probably another 18 hours, the whole time I'm like, oh, any second now, they're going to open my cell and be like, okay, you're done. <laughs> and they never did. <laughs> I've got to do it. Two full time. So I literally been to like slappy, you know, seer school three times, full times. Jeez. That, so, you know, everyone's going through seer school. Like I'm just trying to keep a low profile. I think I was assistant SRO. So assistant, you know, senior ranking officer, those listening don't know that. And so you got a bullseye, like you're going to be the lightning rod. You're just trying not to get slapped as many times as possible. But all the like pararescue guys going through, we didn't have any anyone else from any other service. Pararescue, TACPs, and JTACs. Like when you're in your little cell, like you would always just hear one of the captors at some point just be like, Jesus Christ, you know, because they would open up their cell and like a PJ would just be naked or wearing a thong. Like, cause they're just like, me- like they know they're going to get through and they know they're going to get slapped, but. Um, every like pilot, you know, just like blinders on, like trying to get through, like, don't slap me. Don't slap me. Don't slap me. Yeah. Might as well have some fun with it while we can. It's the little little victories, right? (laughs) That's what, yeah. That's what it's all about. Small victories all the time and just getting through that program. But I don't know. It it was good. Well, Brad, I'm excited to have you on the podcast, man. Uh, we first met on mentors for mill. I was fortunate to be able to co-host and sit there where we got to meet you have an amazing background. You're doing some incredible stuff right now. We're going to dig into all that on the podcast. So before we get rolling, I always like to ask everyone to give me the 30 to 60 second elevator pitch. I'm actually not going to ask you to do that. We're going to do something a little non-standard. So uh, just for those listening, Brad, Delta Force operator, he is in the band Silence and the Light. And I want to kind of work backwards for you because there's a lot of stuff we can't talk about that you did in your career. Things sure. that we're forever grateful for, or people don't know they're grateful for, that you were out there answering and doing some hard work with your brothers and sisters, for that matter. So thanks for doing that. But I want to kind of start 
where you left the army. So you spent 12 years in Delta. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I got there in, uh, went to selection in the fall of 1998, got selected. My, uh, first shot was due right about the time that I was supposed to report to OTC, which is about a year long operator training course. And so I ended up deferring. They told me to defer, stay at home, deal with the baby, all that stuff. And so I had about six months kind of in limbo, um, from the radio recon detachment to going to the start of OTC. So I started OTC in the spring of 1999 and, uh, retired from there in December of 2010. So in that time frame, again, I know you did, uh, just an incredible amount of work. I didn't mention too, in kind of the opening, you know, the movie Black Hawk Down, you were in Mogadishu involved in that. So again, from the start of your military career to the end of it, I would say is probably atypical and rather high tempo. I mean, I know there are a lot of your peers that felt that, but for the vast majority of the military, they're never going to get shot at. That was something you were doing it day in and day out and training for. But when you left in 2010, in my mind, your career, uh, a lot of highs and probably a lot of low lows. What was it like stepping out from just such a high tempo, high adrenaline organization into the civilian world? Um, so I, I talk about this at Fairmouth in just the transition and going from, you know, you work for the president at Delta Force. You know, it's not like you fall under some general that's giving you guidance to go do dumb stuff and things like that. So it was very important work. Not that everything in the military isn't important work. Uh, I would say the things that I liked the most about being there were the things that nobody knows about that happened or the things you prepared for and trained for that nobody knows about that didn't happen. You know, there was a lot of that like, this mission that we were supposed to do at X place that man, it would have been an amazing thing. Um, and just didn't happen for whatever reason. So there was a part of me that knew going into transitioning out of the military that, Hey, you're never going to get this same type of, you know, feedback. You're never going to feel the same way. Maybe the level of importance, uh, maybe the camaraderie whatever it might be. Um, I also knew going into transitioning out that like I'm able to do it on my terms. And there are a lot of guys that weren't able to do it on their terms. You know, they got injured, they got medically retired, were significantly banged up, whatever it might be. And so I'm having my cake and eating it too. And so I, I felt kind of grateful. Um, I'll tell you the things that I've seen with some other folks is that there's like this 18 to 24 month, like grades period where I'm out of the military. I'm excited. I'm out of the military. I can smoke weed if I want. I can <laughs> do this. I don't have to listen to the man. I can wear whatever clothing I, I can throw my hair out, uh, whatever it might be. And then it starts to kind of fall apart where and that purpose isn't there anymore. And the thing that I'm doing now isn't as important as the thing I did back then. And so I, I think 
I was maybe slightly different in that I just kind of went into the whole process knowing that these are things that are going to happen to me. And even in 2010, that was 11 years ago, uh, even in 2010, it wasn't as good as things are now. There was no like, you know, out the door committee, you know, here are all these <laughs> counseling services, here's, you know, there was nothing, man. It was like, all right, turn your badge in, you know, out process and you're out the door. You know, when I out processed active duty, yeah, it's like, a, I don't know, a three page checklist. You got to run around base and get everything signed off. I guess saying you don't have a library book that you're going to steal, I, you know, I all, the, all of mine. <laughs> I'm not going to say I didn't do that as well. I'm like, this is dumb. Like I'm going to turn in my badges for the appropriate security thing. So I don't get in, go to jail yeah. and then pass that. Like, this is dumb. I've never been to the motor pool to check out a vehicle. At least not me. Host library. Um, yeah, you're right. Like, what? I mean, this, all these things are like just acidine, but nonetheless is there. But when I turned in my checklist so I could like leave and get the final like stamp of my orders, whatever, I was thinking, I don't know, whatever. I, I wasn't thinking it was going to be grandiose, but I figured it'd be like a, hey, thanks. We'll see you later. It was literally, I just left my checklist on someone's desk. I got in the car and I drove off base and that was it. You know, like, okay, that was a pretty anticlimactic, you know, to my had, 12 years. I had virtually the same experience other than the person that I had to turn it into, the Fort Bragg person that I had to turn whatever portion of the checklist into. Um, they said, oh, this is weird. Like, these are usually stamps, but these have signatures. And I was like, ooh. <laughs> Like they're totally going to bust me that I forged all this stuff. But similarly, I've never been to transportation on post. I've never been to the on post library to check out folks. I'm just, I forged all that stuff, uh, that turned it into the right person turned into my badge and then drove out the gate. And I think the gate does, at least it did then, they did a pretty good job of like, you can have your family into the compound. It's kind of the first time ever. Um, you know, and you're in the Charlie Beckwith room and there's like historical photos and pictures that no one would ever, uh, see before, you know, that kind of thing. And your whole family can be there. You have to turn in an invite list and they, they give you all kinds of, you know, going away plaques and the fans plaque and all that stuff. And it's, you know, that's a pretty cool thing, but it's like, all right, let's go to chat mall, have some snacks and then see you later. And, and that's kind of it, you know? I think it's one of those things too. And the machine keeps on churning. I think a lot of guys, you, you want to think you're important, right? And not to like downplay any, like everyone's important and they're a team player, but military is a machine. Like it keeps churning. It's ones and zeros and keeps pumping out people. And when you leave, there's someone to fill your gap. I know for me, I think that was kind of like the initial, maybe not even like initial struggle, but like, oh yeah, like it keeps on, it keeps on moving. Like, I wasn't the linchpin that held this thing together, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I talk with people, um, about transition and I talk a lot with people about, uh, that there is no program that's going to help, you know, the 22 vets a day that decide to commit suicide. Like the, the army's job, the military's job is to exactly as you said, it, it's to get guys in, recruit people fight wars, kill bad guys, support, you know, that whole mechanism, whatever it might be, that's their job. It's not to make you feel good about your time in the service. It's not to, you know, 
give you this two year long transition out, feel good party, you know, whatever it is, that's not their job. So the only thing that's going to fix the veteran community is the veteran community. And that's kind of like right now, what you're doing. Can you talk a little bit about silence in the light? I imagine that had to be the driving factor or one of the driving factors for you to kind of pursue music and then the band. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, the long story is, you know, after soon after separating and everything else, you know, my wife might do like a date night every Friday and I would tell her, you know, have a couple cocktails and then go have a nice dinner or something like that. And I would tell her, you know, I feel like I'm a ship out on the ocean and I'm just looking for the spotlight, but just tell me what to do. What can I do to help? Um, and it was kind of interesting from week to week, it would always change. Like one week I'm running for president, you know, the next week I'm, uh, <laughs> you know, standing up something or doing, you know, something like that. That went on for the better part of, this wasn't right after I separated. This was probably four or five years after I separated. And one day she was in the room that I'm sitting in the house and she said, man, it's a shame you're not doing something with all this music equipment. And I was playing, you know, I play all the time, um, and just have like this massive collection of gear and stuff like that. But, uh, it really kind of hit home. It wasn't until the next day I was driving in Manhattan to meet a buddy of mine, Jason Everman, who was a guy that served in the Rangers about the same time that I served and played in Nirvana and Soundgarden prior to joining the army in 1994. And I was driving in the BTM. We were going to check out a Mastodon concert. And uh, Jason and Bill Kelliver, one of the guitarists from Mastodon, like know each other. So we had some like backstage hookup coming out with the band nice. thing. So we, uh, we're having some cocktails and as I'm, as I'm driving in, you know, I'm thinking about this and I said, what if we put together something and we take the proceeds of royalties, like release an album, something like that. And we give the proceeds to charitable organizations that help out veterans and first responders and things like that. He was like, yeah, man, I'm down. And that's really where it started. So I stood up a social media page and it, as best as I could try to, you know, in a very short, uh, you know, social media kind of platform that have, it was like, Hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. And the, the two of us are doing this thing. And it just started to grow organically. How, so how do you think for you, like what's different about you that leaving 20 years of military service, I guess, seeing, seeing some gnarly stuff, and like you didn't fall into a trap or a pit where some other guys do. And not like not everyone does that, right? Like it's a, it's a small percentage, but it is a percentage. Like what are some keys to success and tips that you have that made your transition into a successful one? Um, so I've, I've told this story before. So if anybody has heard it, you know, sorry for it. But uh, in 1990... In 1993, after the whole Black Hawk Down incident, we were still over in Somalia. Um, a large portion of, you know, our task force had been significantly injured and flown off to Germany, uh, flown back home, wherever it might be. And, you know, we were, we were still prepping to do missions to like rescue Mike Durant, things like that. And I don't think most people know about that, but, um, 
as we were getting ready to come home, you know, the, the whole mission got kiboshed, you know, Hey, we're bringing everybody home. That's it. It's over. And, uh, the Delta force site came over to talk to the handful of Rangers that were still there that had been a part of the battle. And he said, men, you've lived through something that could give you a lifetime of excuses. And, you know, you can go out and be a trunk and beat your wife and do all these, you know, negative activities and behaviors. And if you do that, I'm going to tell you something. You're letting the bad guys win. Don't let the bad guys win. And that was the only counseling we got, you know, coming back, even for Bogadish, there was no, you know, uh, hey, PTSD, there was nothing. Um, that stuck with me from then. You know, all the way through, and I still, I think, live by that today, where I don't want to use anything that's happened, you know, as an excuse for poor behavior, whatever that might be. And I'll take it a step further and I'll say, you know, not only is it letting the bad guy win, but, um, forget where I was going with that. What is that? But <laughs> yeah. well, hey, it's a it's a cliffhanger. You guys are going to have to yeah. tune in next week for. Welcome back. Uh, <laughs> let me take a five minute break here and see. That's the TBI. Oh, this is what it is. Um, I refuse to be a victim, right? Like I signed up for this stuff. Although I experienced a lot of things that I didn't think when I joined in 1990, and there was no war. I didn't necessarily sign up to like go to combat, even though there was. You know, obviously, chance that most of the people that joined in the early '90s peacetime army, like there was no war. Most yeah. of the guys were like they were getting college money. They were getting out four years later. They were going to college, get college paid for, and then they were going to become whatever they were going to become. But I refuse to be a bit, and I don't want it to be like oh, this bad thing happened to me, and I'm going to use that as an excuse for poor behavior and, and doing things that I shouldn't be. There have definitely been times when I've struggled with, you know, some of the stuff that I've lived through and dealt with and everything else, you know, to say that I haven't abused alcohol at times. Uh, fortunately I, I don't have the addict gene, whatever that might be where, you know, I get hooked on something, but there have been times when I've definitely done things that I've re regretted because, you know, of trying to deal with stuff and, and everything else, you know, that's a reality, but think ultimately don't let the bad guys win and, you know, don't be a victim. I think those are the two things that just kind of resonate with me and still do. I mean, it's, it's simple in saying that. And in my mind, I mean, it's really powerful. That's for time I kind of ever, I've heard it put that way, but just the fact that, you know, it's stuck with you. Right. And I know I, I can't even imagine some of the stuff you've had to deal with, but being able to more or less package that up and then, you know, that, get you through whatever you're dealing with is, I think it's pretty powerful. Yeah. And I've, I've seen, um, some stuff more recently. Uh, and this is something that I, I'm a work in progress, right? We're all a work in progress. And, and to say that I can't learn things or can't learn something from a situation or, or something else, you know, it's kind of foolish. Um, recently this thing, and I, I will talk about this too something's kind of come to my attention and 
it's nothing that I necessarily thought about before because it didn't really apply to me. Um, I've seen a lot of guys that struggle that dealt with things that were like that shame, shameful, you know, ashamed feeling. And maybe it was something that they did in combat. Uh, maybe it was that they were fired from a unit. Maybe it was that they were RFS from the Rangers and they carry that shame of whatever that thing is, they carry it with them. And I've had a chance to talk to a handful of guys and live that. And some of them very significantly. And I tell them the same thing. And that is like, nobody remembers, you know, um, you're dealing with that and you've made it an everyday thing that you wake up and think about and everything else. But nobody really remembers that we were all dealing with our own stuff. And to think that so many years later, we're all sitting around talking about, you know, you and that thing that you did that was horrible and you got fired or whatever it might be. I have a buddy that I went to the operator training course with, and I'm not going to talk about, you know, say his name or anything else. He's one of the first guys that got significantly injured in Iraq and was on a rooftop, came in all over, was on a rooftop, made, made a breach on the roof and immediately got shot coming in the door by a guy that was like right behind it, kind of jammed everything up and the door got jammed and nobody could get in behind him. And the guy, when he shot him, got him right in the shoulder and killed the nerve in his arm. So now he's got like a dead hand and can't operate his gun. So he grabs the guy and holds him in close and he gets shot like three more times in the side. And then finally a teammate comes in and gets the guy. And this dude, you know, for all intents and purposes is like one of the greatest heroes ever, right? <laughs> he gets, he gets stuck on fentanyl lollipops for two years. And this was at the very beginning of, you know, kind of significant war in Iran. Nobody knew what that stuff does. Nobody knew the long-term effects. So at some point in time, he gets weaned off with fentanyl lollipops and he ends up taking something that he finds on the floor, you know, that had fallen out of like a medic's aid bag and he gets sent down the road to fire. That dude spent the better part of eight years living in his pickup truck, addicted Jeez. to heroin. True story. So from, for absolutely the pinnacle of military service to that. And he's just now kind of like reaching out, you know, and you know, Hey, I, I, I'd love to come see you guys. I'd love to come Hank. Like nobody, nobody remembers that you got fired. Nobody remembers that. We all remember you as the hero, the guy, this guy lived, uh, next neighborhood over for me in Fayetteville. And we used to yeah. all the time on the weekend, you know, these kids and all that stuff. And anyway, Get back in, you know, even if you've got that ashamed moment or that thing, thing, I can assure you, nobody cares. Nobody remembers and you would rather have you and be a part of the brotherhood and the good memories and everything else. Like we'd rather have that than that other things, right? A hundred percent. And that's one of those things. I always tell people, it's like, no one cares more about your career or your life than you do. And I think it's applicable in this sense because when you're worried about something you messed up or you goofed up, everyone else is worried about what, you know, what they goofed up and what they messed up, what's going on in their personal life. 
and they don't have enough time to worry about your shenanigans. Like, sure, like occasionally, like a story. It depends on the scenario, right? Like someone gets fired. I get buddies. You know, they bend metal in a jet. Like it gets talked about, but then everyone like moves on. Like you, you care about the people you're around and your teammates and your friends because of the people they are, not necessarily the things they do. So it it's one of those things. Like I, I think that's a salient point. Like you just got to get back out there. You got to show your face like showing up is 90% of the battle, you know? Yeah. And those, you know, like I said, those guys, like nobody thinks ill of that, you know, uh, regardless of what you've done wrong, I've done stuff wrong. I've been, you know, reprimanded, punished, whatever. And, uh, you know, years later, the other thing that's interesting is I've run into people that I did not like while we served <laughs> together. And yeah. just because you're a Delph Force guy, just because you're a Ranger, doesn't mean you're a great human being. Doesn't mean that, you know, we all love yep. each other and everything <laughs> else. And I've run into people that I absolutely just despise. And generally speaking, like, there's no, um, you know, we're not vying for the same leadership position. We're not, you know, that whole sharks smell blood in the water beast you know mentality is kind of gone and you know to the same point as the guy that feels shame or whatever else like the ballot blood was gone it was interesting because you know hey what do you do now oh i do this like no shit you know and and you start finding commonalities and you know, you're not playing the role and right you're, you're the you're the person you are and right? so it's totally different now that's interesting too, because I mean it's gotta be the same way. Everything is a competition in the Air Force. You know, fighter pilot world, everything is a competition. You're always racked and sacked against your peers. You know, there's a best bomb dropper, there's a best shooter, there's a best you know, guy who's going out fighting BFM. You're all like everything you do, there's a number one and there's a number last. Like, and so that kind of dry it's a need, right? Like you need that competition that to steel sharpen steel. Um but it's interesting, I guess, when you get outside of that world where you never really got to necessarily know someone because it's kind of the same way. You're not going to like everyone you're around just because you guys fly planes or work together. But getting outside that environment, you start to bump into people and you get to know them, I would say, sometimes a little bit better or like, eh, turns out he's not a douchebag. <laughs> it was just I guess you're like the nature of the environment. Yeah. We can still be uh, yeah. the one that you... It might be someone you might not hang out with on a Friday night, but yeah, you have this commonality now, and both used to be this thing, both do whatever. And you know, it's interesting to me that you know, like I said, running into a handful of guys that I wasn't necessarily fans of, and it's it's like water under the brook. There there is no drama anymore, and it's become more of a brotherhood and things like that. And that's why I said guys that are out there on the fringe that maybe feel that shame or they get RFS from the Rangers or whatever it might be, like you would do yourself a lot of good too, just coming back and claiming that. Um, which yeah. led me to another conversation I, I recently had with a handful of uh, guys that I served with. And then it is at some point in time, there's like a line that gets crossed, a good line where you're now accepted as a part of the tribe. And so it could be maybe an event that you performed, you know, phenomenally. And that might be the thing that you're accepted. Um, but it's interesting because there are guys that fall short of that. Like in the, the point being, it's like in the region community, the guy was there, 
doesn't matter if he was there for three months or six months, he can say he was there. And no one in the Ranger community is going to be like, well, he only did, you know, three months. He only was there six months. Well, similarly, you know, at Delta, there are guys that are there, uh, very short period of time and the guys that are there longer, obviously guys that are there longer, you know, have a little bit, a little bit different, you know, thing, but like, what makes you a part of the tribe to where, you know, now I can come to a former auction and, you know, feel the camaraderie. What I'm saying is that the Rangers do a better job of that than say Delta does. What do you think that is? What, I mean, what gets you to be in the club, right? And again, I think you're doing a good job explaining it. It's like, just because you pass the course or graduate and you're officially stamped X, Y, or Z doesn't really mean you're accepted, right? Yeah. What do you think that is? Like, what, what gets you across the line? I had, um, so when I got to the unit, my first squadron leadership was, I want to say Pete Blaver. And he's written a lot of books and, you know, people know him for, for what he is and what he's become. And he said, it. he, he like kind of had this conversation with the new guys and you know, we've been through selection and now been through the operator training course. You really have to kind of perform to get through these things. And really what you realize, you know, throughout the journey is like, you've never really accomplished and, you know, you, you still have to prove yourself. So just because you made it through whatever it is you're supposed to make it through, you're always having to perform and, and you know, prove yourself. And he said, you know, you guys are just getting here. And, you know, there's one standard and it's, you know, performing and it's this and that and said, you may see things that happen. Just realize that right now you've got zero blue chips. And at some point in time, you'll have a bank of blue chips and maybe that can help you. <laughs> and, and I never really thought of it that way, but you know, at some point in time, it's like, this guy is worth fighting for. This guy is worth saying. You know, I've seen dudes that got DUIs and immediately left the building. I see guys that got DUIs that stuck around and got to stay in the building. Um, accidental discharge, something kind of totally different, but, um, you know, generally speaking, and, and so I always thought about that, like what, what point do you get to is, you know, the blue chip bank full or is, does it have enough blue chips that I can. I've been step on my crank a couple of times and so <laughs> versus guys that don't, you know? And so I don't know what, well, like I said, maybe it's a, a key performance in a battle. Maybe it's uh, you know, did well on something and, you know, or was talking to the president, you know, made the president laugh and told, you know, whatever it is, but there's something that happens at some point. I don't know if that's tangible. Yeah. And you wonder if, is it personality based? Like obviously you had to be able to perform. But like, there's like, I don't know. We got some guys that show up in the squadron who are just like weird dudes and they're never going to be a part of it. And it's like, I remember one in particular, like he could build you a rocket and send you to the moon, but he couldn't tie his own shoes. You know, like sure. there's no common sense. He could go out there and start the jet and fly it. And he knew everything about the beeps and squeaks of it, but then he couldn't communicate to you. Like you, you couldn't make fun of him and then him make fun of you back. You know, is it like a personality based thing? You think once you had the performance piece knocked out, I think there's some of that. And, you know, I've definitely had teammates that were brand new and got accepted. 
and just because like new job and I always said, at least for my team and the one that I've served on the longest, I felt like I would rather have a guy that's 80% performer, but a hundred percent compatibility. Like we can, we can tweak some stuff and get the guy to where he needs to be with whatever uh, thing we're doing, but can't get along. doesn't matter if you're a hundred percent performer. And I think, I think the unit's very keen on that, you know, uh, at the end of the operator training course, it's almost like an NFL draft. And so you have, it, it rotates which squander gets first pick. And then you look at first pick is like, you know, the guy that finished, you know, number one in the class. And even then, I don't know if there's a good, you know, other than shooting events and things like that, that's and shooting and physical training. That's kind of where you rank. I knew I finished my class as the, as the top shooter. And so, you know, that put me up on the, on the pecking order, you know, but there were guns that, uh, you know, outperformed me by far, yeah. uh, in a lot of other aspects that, you know, maybe weren't the best shooters and, and it's kind of the point, right? It's like, we all have strengths and weaknesses and as long as we're compatible and you get along, I think that goes a lot further than just being the number one performer. So it's about being more well-balanced maybe. Yeah, I'm I, I'm super average and I'm like middle of the road. And I think a lot of my success has come from just, I, I preach like the good dude, good dudeette theory because I get all these kids who ask like, hey, how do I do well at pilot training? Like I definitely, I am definitely not that smart and I definitely wasn't the smartest going through pilot training. But like I try to like help other people out. That's a big part of it or a piece of it, right? Like you're going to fight as a team and it starts there. Like you're the foundation, the building blocks. And so if you're just like me, 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 like there are the guys who go to MIT, super brains, they show up there and they're going to cruise through because they could build the plane. Yeah. Uh, but then again, like you can't, you don't want to go hang out and have a beer with them on Friday night. Right. Which probably then translates down the road when it's time to go fight. Like I don't want him off my wing. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting to see those like dynamics play out because yeah, they're, they're people who are super smart. But again, I think like average I don't know. I'm just trying to toot my own horn. I'm like, again, average and like, I'm, I'm like, I'm like right here looking up. Like you guys are great. I'm just going to keep trucking along. Just try to be a good dude and keep my head down low. You know what you want to do is average. average. You don't want to excel. You don't want to be number one. Yeah. If you can be number one and a good dude, then you win. I can't Anybody do that. But some other people can. Well, it takes a new guy to like be number five. <laughs> <laughs> just you need to fall middle of the road that's my <laughs> advice to you just just kind of put in a you know a mediocre effort and it's going to work out yeah until i i get a lot of and this is one of the unintended consequences of the social thing kind of you know people following and people seeing what we're doing with the band and everything else so they get a lot of questions from guys uh music stuff but a lot of military questions too from young kids and um they always ask the same thing. What do I need to do to be, you know, this? And I tell them the same thing, like only one thing and that's don't quit. You know, yeah. that's really all you have to do. And I'm a perfect example of, and I showed up, you know, probably smoked weed the night before I went to MEPS, you know, <laughs> do whatever, just like the total knucklehead and had no idea. Like nobody in my family was in the military. I did that. No two on, you know, hey, here's some things you should do or shouldn't do, nothing. And just flew by the seat of my pants the whole way through. 
And you realize also that the military is very much a crawl, crawl walk, run yep. organization, regardless of service. Nobody's throwing you into, hey, now all of a sudden you're just flying a plane straight out of, you know, whatever your, your basic courses are. You know, you're, you're getting trained along the way and then practical exercise. Now we're going to run after we've crawled and walked and everything. So, yep. you know, in terms of advice, just really for me, and guys ask about Ranger or special forces contracts, you know, and going, uh, into special operations, it's, you know, look, what can I do? Just show up and, and do everything that you're asked to do and don't quit. Yeah. I think that's, that's the advice too, because again, like you said, crawl, walk, run, there's a syllabus and it's a building block approach and you're not the first person to go through it and you're not the last person to go through it, but the military is pretty good at building people up into what they want them to go out there and do. I do always say, I'm like, be the best at whatever you're doing, right? I just happen to fall in the middle of the pack as the average, but you have to like, go be the best at it. Like it's cliche to say, but be the best ranger, be the best fighter pilot, be the, whatever it is. And it's going to sort itself out and you're going to fall in that rack and stack. So when I, when I, um, you know, talked with the recruiter initially, I told the recruiter I wanted to be in Delta and he was, you know, but you can't do that. You got to be something first, like special forces. And I was like, okay, I'll do that. And he goes, we can't do that either. You gotta do something before that, like a ranger. And that's, that's kind of how it started. I didn't necessarily expect for it to take eight years to get to Delta, you know, after, after joining. Um, but also that was just my being naive and not really understanding yeah. and they're really not being a lot of information back in those days about anything. Um, when I got to the rangers, I realized to your point, like, I just need to be the best that I could be today because there is no going on from here if you're not a top performer here. So, you know, each step of the way was kind of like, I've got to be a performer. And if I'm not, I'm never going to get there. So um, even though that was a goal of mine and that was one of the reasons that I joined the Army, wasn't something that I didn't every day wake up and go, okay, what do I have to do today to get in Delta Force? You know, it was, right. I just need to perform. I need to go run. I need to hang on the run. I need to not get a, you know, below a 280 on my PT test. I need to go, you know, do this, whatever it might be. Um, but yeah, very much to your point. Yeah. Show up and win. Just be the best. It's pretty simple. That's it. That's all I got. <laughs> or middle of the road. <laughs> or middle of the road. What? I mean, you might land again. You're landing in the middle of the road. If you're like me, my best, just not that great. <laughs> Good. Not great. <laughs> my best and your best are two different things. Sarge. Uh. Well, jumping back there. So you said, Hey, to the recruiter, I want to be in Delta. You do have kind of an, like, how'd you end up going to the army? What was the drive there? How'd you end up at the recruiter's office? Uh, so I originally, there, there was a trifecta, trifecta of, yeah. of three things are redundant, redundant. Um, there was, there was this uh, series of events that happened and maybe towards the end of 1989. And was playing music and, you know, working jobs and lifeguarding and stuff like that to kind of pay bills and whatnot. But I really wanted to, you know, from the time I was little, I wanted to be a musician and, you know, pro musician and everything else. And I, I built a band and, you know, was trying to push that as hard as I could. And, you know, things even locally, I grew up DC area and there were bands like Rap Child that, you know, had elevated and gotten to had bangers ball and stuff like that. So like there definitely was a progression of things happened that could have gotten us to that point. So 
into 89 and three things happened. One, uh, fan just kind of fell apart and I thought, okay, I can take another three years to build this thing and, you know, try and get it to where it was, where am I then? And now I'm at like, okay, 23 years of age. I was, I was 20 at the time and I thought, okay, I could either rebuild and go that way. Uh, one of the other things that happened was a buddy of mine that had joined the air force. And he was like an EOB guy in the Air Force. He came home for probably Christmas vacation. And I talked to him and he told me about the end of his basic training. There were these recruiters that showed up that were trying to recruit people into what I didn't know was probably STS and, you know, special backup squadron where these guys jump in behind enemy lines and rescue down pilots. And when he talked about that, it's kind of like, you know, that, that kind of sounds cool. And, yeah. uh, the third thing, let's see, what was it? Uh, so band, uh, that I'm trying to remember what the third thing was now. I'm having another, uh, TBI moment. Maybe. <laughs> uh, anyway, these things kind of led me to go to the air force guy. And I went to the air force recruiter only because, you know, my buddy, uh, you know, said, Hey, this is what I did. So I went to the Air Force recruiter and actually joined the Air Force. And yeah. uh, the Air Force recruiter 100% lied to me. Because <laughs> he said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, my buddy told me about these guys that jump in behind and wants all this routes. And I thought, okay, well, that would be cool to do. So he says, I can get you a contract for that. You just got to sign in first and now I'll get you a contract. And so... Over a period of about a month, I kept leaving his office and he would say, you know, like, finally, the army guy pulls me aside and he goes, you know, what, what's going on? I see you here. Like, what kind of bullshit is that guy telling me? And I said, I don't, I don't really know, but he's telling me a contract, but I've not gotten any contract and I'm worried I'm going to be basic training and they go, oh, you're going to be a cook. And I get sent to Alaska to go be a cook or something. Like, I don't know how this works. And he's like, well, what do you want to do? And that's what opened the whole can of worms. I said, well, you know, something like Delta Force. <laughs> yeah. Can I do that? That sounds great. You got a program for that? <laughs> I'm ready for it. Yeah. So <laughs> just, just that simple, you know, the recruiter lying to you. How fast was it from meeting that army recruiter to when you were showing up to basic training? So the army recruiter had to, because I had signed, drove me to Andrews Air Force Base. And I had to get some Fulberg Colonel Andrews Air Force Base to like negate my contract, you know, yeah. signed on the dotted line. And it was a big deal. He's like, can't tell anybody that I drove you. And, you know, like he's like sneaking up into the parking lot, then like jump out of his car and go in and. This colonel is screaming at me, uh, you know, you're making the worst mistake ever and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, whatever, dude, just, you know, sign my paper so I can get out of your hair. And anyway, so that's how I got into the army. So then I was able to, uh, you know, sign with the army, but at that time, you know, pre-war, it was, I think a nine month wait for me to go to basic training. So it was a delayed enlistment thing where. I didn't pick that. That was literally, it took all that time before, you know, uh, maybe it was drawdowns or whatever was happening at the time. I don't remember, but yeah. 
That uh, Gulf War, what, where are we well, in that timeline? Another thing. So the three things that happened, uh, the Rangers jumped into Panama, December of 1989. And okay. it was then a house. And uh, was watching what little bit of that was going on on uh, CNN. And so there was some kind of like live footage and things like that. Yeah. That was kind of like being really kind of stimulated the excitement, you know, meter in me. And uh, anyway, so there's one of the three things. But you, you grew up there's no military family, no military background. It's purely, hey, I'm playing music. I like music. I'm going to be a musician. Band falls apart. You see Panama happening. And then, hey, I'm off to the recruiter. Yeah, basically. In a, in a nutshell. And interestingly, my, my bandmate Jason had a similar experience. You know, he was playing. He played in Nirvana and then had a falling out with those guys and jumped in and toured for a year with Soundgarden on their first world tour and kind of had this unfulfilled moment and uh Mogadishu happened. And so that, that was impetus for him going and joining the army and went right to the crew rooms. Like I'm going to be a ranger. Man, and now you guys bandmates are like time or, you know, meeting up too. That's kind of, kind of wild and serendipitous the fact yeah. that that was a catalyst for him and then you guys are playing together now yeah yeah totally man you know it's interesting i do recruiting for the air force and they're on the reserve side of the house it's big there's lots of issues going on like period we won't get into those but now this year is the first time that someone could have started their career after 9-11 gone through 20 years of continuous combat operations and retired but I know when I was doing air shows, going back and you're talking to kids and stuff like that, it was, it kind of got surreal when you're like showing up to high school and kids were born after 9-11. Cause for me, that was 9-11 was a big catalyst. I, I f flew my first flight on September 10th, 2001, you know, and like next day, boom, like I want to get into it. Um, so like you with Panama, there was a catalyst, right? And there's going to be another catalyst at some point. Sure. But it's interesting to see the dynamics now of people and it's, I don't know. It's always cyclical, right? Now we're just living it. But it's interesting the dynamics now and trying to get people to go out there and join and serve the military. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, I talk a lot about, you know, when people ask about Logan issue, you almost have to preface it with, you have to understand there was no war. There was no budget. There was no, you know, super huge training budget. There was, you know, you got what you got and you kind of dealt with what you had and, um, it was a completely different military and what made you a good soldier back in those days was, you know, you could run and do PT and you had your uniform was squared away and stuff like that. And, you know, there was a lot more too, obviously I'm general, right. but you know, those were the things that were important at the time, you know, discipline and the eyelets on your boots had to be black and not silver and all that kind of stuff. Completely different mind frame. Right, there's so much, I guess, and put it lightly, free time, right, to worry about frivolous stuff, right, because you're not worried about combat and training and deploying. So I'm thinking, I'm just trying to paint the picture in my mind for the timeline. You join in 90, right? So Panama happens, Gulf Wars happening probably as you're going through training or somewhere in that timeline. Yep. Uh, everything is drawing down, and then you guys, you go through training, and then you go right to ranger school out of basic training or pretty close to it. So you go, um, generally speaking, I, I signed up infantry, but you could, you okay. know, I think there were like five different MLNs that can serve within the Rangers. So you have like communicators and medics and 
uh, probably supply and, you know, folks like that. But, um, so I was the infantry guy, went to basic training and starting in November of nine. And okay. so I did basic training for whatever, eight weeks. And then AIT infantry stuff, they call it post it. It was like one station unit training. So, um, did basic training, AIT infantry stuff, then went to airborne school and went through then what was a three week ranger indoctrination program writ. Now it's like an eight week long RATS ranger assessment selection phase, something like that program. Maybe, uh, yeah. and then you get assigned to a ranger battalion. And once you're in the ranger battalion, kind of have to prove yourself. And it's a requirement to have a range of tap to be in a leadership position. So, you know, generally between like a year and 18 months as a private to maybe, P, you know, PFC E3 or something like that, you're just proving yourself every day. And once you've proven yourself long enough, then you get slots of ranger school, you automatically promote to E4 when you get your range of tab. And now you're like a team leader and okay. at least, you know, are slotted to take over a team within a squad, within a platoon. That's kind of the way it rolls. So I fortunately, uh, and unfortunately got selected way ahead of folks because I was the only one that passed like the PT test in my platoon. So I think I was in the Rangers for five months or so and went to ranger school and it, it bit me in the ass because I had, uh, readers that had left my platoon and went to the ranger training brigade or running ranger school. And they were like, what the fuck are you doing here? Like you just got there. And <laughs> so they, they put me on the extended course and um, I, I think I ended up doing seven phases of your school instead of four. And, uh, yeah, it was an ass kicker, but anyway, um, that was kind of like the normal progression, at least how things went back then. It's, going through ranger school. Similar. Yeah. But like if going through ranger school, if you don't have to wash back for a phase, how long does that start to finish? When I went, it was 72 days and it was four okay. phases. They'd gotten rid of one of the phases. So I would imagine it's probably like 65 days, something like that. No. And if you wash back and have to repeat a phase, how long did that extend you doing the seven, seven rounds? Yeah. So instead of it being like three months long, it would, it's, you know, about five and a half months long. Dude. And talk about having to show up every day, right? And be the best every single day just to get through it. I hearing guys talk about it, like it's, it, it just sounds like soul crushing. So how, like when, when you go back and have to redo a phase, what were you telling yourself to get through that? Was it just like day by day or what, what got you through having to repeat that? Um, I think it was day by day. Really my first time through was, you know, kind of getting set up by these leaders. And it just kind of put me in a position where I, I would just get fucked every, you know, every time I did anything. And now yeah. my peers, you know, they all know that I'm like damaged goods. And so it was like, we're not going to help that guy, you know, uh, you know, that, that was just kind of the situation. And like, as an E2, you know, I didn't understand about like how to march a company of guys from here to there, like maybe I had done some drill and ceremony, but yeah, it's not like, and they were playing games with me. Like one of the things that you can have happen to you during radio school is that you do something wrong and they'll 
give you a major minus spot report. Like you did this and you were talking in line, getting a major minus, right? And I think you get two of those, you like repeat, they'll recycle. You get two or three. I forget what it was. Anyway, they were just fucking with me. I didn't know that they were just fucking with me, but in one day I'm signed 18 major minus spot reports because my company, some of the individuals didn't have their cat eyes sewn onto their rucksacks proper. So every example of hey, first sergeant, that's the uh, cat eyes are crooked, major minus. Hey, first sergeant, this is some such major minus. And it was just like, it got in my head. I thought, you know, okay, well, I didn't know that they were just screwing with me. Uh, yeah, I'm done. You know, but anyway, that happened. Oh, uh, yeah. So they made me the company first sergeant and I'm an E2. And, uh, one of the other things that they did was, Hey, first sergeant, uh, we need five guys to stay back from Christmas break, uh, to do details around the company area. So pick five guys and. And I was like, I can't pick five people, you know, like what we did, right? So I, I go, okay, well, I'll be one of them. And they made me pick four names out of a stack of lead forms. And then they didn't say anything to me. Just dude just walks right outside and he goes, your first sergeant picked you and stayed bad it from Christmas break. Uh, let me see so-and-so's. And it was all bullshit. Like they didn't actually need it, but it was just setting me up. And yeah. Anyway, so that was one of the, one of the fun things that I got to deal with. <laughs> just, yeah, this just trying to like, you know, <laughs> I'm just trying to do the, the grave in and try and slip through the grass. It was like, not happen, but you know, anyway. <laughs> yeah. It's good to be the lightning rod every now and then. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, this is, I mean, complete apples and oranges as far as like the intensity level, but Sear is one of those. I, so I was SRO and I think at one point I had like 30 people, like we're all in a room and it was towards the end of it. And like, you, I mean, again, you know, like the end is coming, right? But we didn't know if it was going to be 18 hours, two hours or 36 hours. You got a rough idea, but you're like, at this point, like, I'm tired of this. And so we got all pulled out of the room, some kind of, you know, hazing deal. And we thought like, hey, this is going to be it put us back in the room. Then they bring us out and they do this like little, like kind of tease of like being released. And we're like, Oh, it's over. They put us back in the room and I'm like, we're not done. And everyone's like, just starts bitching and moaning about it. I'm like, Hey, look, like, let's just stay in the zone. Like we're going to keep pushing through it. You know, like yada, yada, fall back on your stuff. And right after I said that they walked in the room and they said, all right, you guys are done. The instructor came up to me. He's like, Hey, I mean, we're listening to everything you say. And the fact that you said like, Hey, get your game bases back on. Let's like keep pushing through this. Like you just got to keep trucking because they're just messing with you. And that's like every, every training program you go through, people are messing with you. Um, uh, which I don't know. It's, it's part of it. It's part of the haze and they want to see you react. Yeah. Um, no doubt. And then that was, yeah, it was just, it was a no win situation. <laughs> I didn't realize that it was just fun and games. I was like, okay, well, obviously I'm recycling because I've got 18 major minus spot reports in one afternoon. So, you know, I guess I know what that means. And I go on to the next phase, like, well, okay, that's crazy. Like what happened to all these spot reports? And then I get to the next phase, but at that point, it's like, they had made such an example of me that, you know, I had a couple guys walk off in the middle of the desert and, you know, I was 
in charge of the patrol, even though we were two separate units, this guy walked off in the middle of the desert and, you know, was lost for six hours or something like that. And of course that was my patrol. So I got a no go for patrol and, you know, it just kind of compounds. <laughs> but you got through it, you know, just yeah. day by day, yeah. you know, keep pushing through it. Yeah. Yeah. Never quit. Don't quit. That's all you get. Yeah. Show Little up. Don't quit. Number five. <laughs> be your best, be average. <laughs> Mediocrity. Uh, getting through ranger school. So you graduate, now you're a ranger. And then, well, you're probably in the unit with your tab for about a year or so before Mogadishu kicks off. Yes. Am I guessing that, that right? That was, uh, I finished ranger school in, in uh, late 92. And, met, you know, somewhere in there. Um, and, yeah, I found a year before uh, Mogadishu kicks off. And interestingly, you know, kind of got groomed right away to be a leader and they'll send you to other schools. Like I went to jump master school and I went to, uh, you know, whatever it might be, seer school. I think I went then and I told my chief command that I wanted to be in the recon detachment. So at the time there was this not secret, but it was a very small detachment of ragers in the regiment that could, you know, go to Halo school these scuba guys and they were supposed to be kind of the scouts and, you know, recon for the ranger Ray. And I told my leadership that I wanted to go there. So as soon as I mentioned that, like all of my, not fast tracking, but, you know, geared up to be a leader, you know, the next squad leader or whatever, um, they kind of pulled me off of that. And so I just kind of was in a pause, was supposed to go to selection for this recon detachment in October of 93. So when we deployed to our training exercise, uh, pre Mogadishu in Texas and Fort Bliss, I was just kind of like an extra gunner, you know, extra gun on my team. I wasn't really in charge of anybody, but you know, had obviously proven myself and they could trust me and things like that. So I was, uh, uh, yeah, just kind of freelancing. And then, I mean, you're still a young guy, but you said like, once you, I mean, once you get your tab, I mean, was there anything like, Hey, you know, you got kind of haze going through being the young guy because you went so early, but once you graduated, did you have to deal with any of that anymore? I don't know. Pretty much stopped. So in, in the Ranger regiment, you know, would you call it, you know, hip hop to training and make that as a cover word for hazing people or whatever it yeah. might be. But you know, there, there was this thing getting him out of that. I think once as, as a leader later, um, once you kind of recognize that like this guy isn't going to quit, he physically can hang, he's trainable. Um, that kind of stops and there might be some, you know, random acts of cruelty and things like that, that happen that, you know, um, <laughs> but, but generally speaking, like once you come back for Raider school, they're, they're, you know, grooming you to be a leader, a team leader, and then swap leader and move up the chain. And, and a lot of that stops, you know, you're still military bearing and all that stuff with, you know, subordinates and, and above you. But, uh, yeah, generally speaking, it's chill at that point. Gotcha. So, but still you show up, you're, you're a trusted gun, you're a trusted dude. Um, and then you guys are out the door. What was the kind of lead up to Mogadishu when you guys, like, did you guys know what you're rolling into or was it, Hey, this kicked off, hop on the plane and go. What, what was it like then? So we were, um, at a GRX, which was a joint readiness exercise. And that was something that, 
like all the units within, you know, SOCOM are kind of working together the way that they would work, uh, if something real were to happen. So we were actually doing like a two week, may have been less, I don't remember, but it was about a two week train training at exercise in Fort Bliss, Texas. And kind of in the middle of that, um, we got called into our leadership's, you know, tent, wherever it might be. And Hey, there's this thing going on in a place called Lubavishu and the UN and the US is providing aid to these starving Somalis through the UN. And there's a warlords that are, you know, starting problems and killing people and stealing the aid, whatever that might be. And the president wants to stop that. And that was kind of all we heard. And then it was like, okay, maybe it's going to happen. Go, go back and do your training thing. And, uh, maybe a day later, we get called back in and it was kind of like, Hey, we think this is going to happen. We're going to be going to Fort Bragg and do a training, you know, uh, cycle with the guys that we're going to go over there and do this with. So, you know, we'll keep you in the loop, you know, until then just go back and do your training stuff. Uh, I think within a day we were on plane Fort Bragg, went and did it about, I think it was about a 10 day train up. Um, prior to what would be us going over, we finished okay. our train up and my platoon, as an example, had one mission during the train up and then it got switched last minute. But anyway, the president's not ready to do this yet. So get back on the plane and go back to the training exercise in Fort Bliss, Texas, and, you know, finish that up. We land in Texas and another American UN worker had been killed and said, okay, president's ready to execute. So get back on the plane, go back to Fort Bragg. <laughs> True story. And I think we slept on the tarmac in Fort Bliss, uh, Texas for like four hours or something while they refueled the plane and swapped the crew. And then we got back on the plane and went back to Fort Bragg. So, um. We were there for a handful of days. We got some uniforms, like desert uniforms, desert helmet covers, and desert boots, and uh, maybe plus up. I think we were allowed to use the PX, you know, but it was like, you can't call home. You know, this is totally, there's no, you know, pay phones, anything like that. Yeah. Run and and uh, next thing you know, we're on a C5, loaded up a couple different shots to C5s, and we landed Bobby Beach. That's wild. What was anything set up when you guys landed in Mogadishu or is it no kidding? Like establish the base, establish the airfield. Um, yeah, there were, there were definitely things there. So, um, we didn't know what we were getting into. I don't, I, I don't remember hearing anything about like, oh, there are other UN forces on airfield and where do you be staying at the air? Like, I don't remember any of that. I just remember it being kind of like, you know, we're going to lay and we're going to stay in this hangar. Maybe that. I don't even know. I remember any, but, uh, we land and I think we were all thinking like, you know, are we going to have to like low crawl, you know, individual movement techniques off the yeah. plane? Like, are we going to get shot at or what, you know, what's going to happen? And, uh, anyway, we get there and it was kind of like the welcoming committee and they had our living spaces kind of already identified, uh, all that stuff. I almost immediately got, you know, hey, Thomas, take the private and go. There's a hole in the, in the fence back there or in the wall and don't let anybody in here. And so I think that's kind of like, hey, you need to establish a security perimeter around this thing. So 
they strung up concertina wire and that was like a little gate coming off the airfield. So people couldn't just get into our living environment. Um, we had a huge connex and you can see pictures now, but they had connexes in front of the hangar, uh, door kind of this, so they could just shoot RPGs right into yeah. the front door of the hangar. And so like the sandbags aren't going to film themselves. So we need, to, <laughs> we need to fill this continent full of sandbags and, you know, to keep it as like a barricade so that they could, you know, either drive something in there or shoot stuff in there. So we were doing things like that. Um, so I was just about dark and I take this private up to the hole in the fence. And the first thing that happens is a guy, and I, I knew this now, I didn't necessarily know it then, but was uh, probably one of the Russian doctors. And, you know, again, not really understanding who is on this cop out with us, but, and this guy comes up and he starts talking to me and I'm like, Hey, you know, the fuck out of here. Yeah. That kind of thing. Like, I don't know who you are, but you know, you're not coming through the hole in the wall. So, um, we had our guns with us and that was it. And woo, more around hits building. 50 feet away from me and hits the roof of it. And they're just like sparks go everywhere. And I think I'm at a radio and I'm like, yo, could we get our gear out here? You know, like <laughs> you know, out vests or helmets or any of that stuff. And at some point they probably ran a private with our gear. You know, once he got all his stuff on, ran, ran our stuff out to us, but it's kind of sat there exposed and, uh, you know, up against the wall while, uh, the more, more rounds kept coming. The perfect DFP just yes. out in the open with it. <laughs> yeah, we weren't there very long and, you know, more rounds were already coming to the cop out. Did you guys have a lot of IDF that was rolling into the base while you guys were there? Or is that just kind of the initial welcoming committee from the locals? Um, yeah, I think that was just kind of, you know, then taking some pot shots and all the more rounds that happened after that were kind of, you know, out and about. I think we got, my platoon ended up standing under some like, cement dawning or something we were, we were totally covered so it wasn't a big deal yeah. and i think at that point they recognized like don't sit out there next to the hole like hit by something so we went under this cover and me and my homie light up a cigarette and we're sitting there smoking and michael team sorry who smokes also comes over and he's like look out we're gonna see that you know like uh dude we're behind a wall like, there's no way that you see our cigarette but we're doing push-ups because we were smoking and <laughs> as other border rounds are hit it. True story. Oh, that sounds like shenanigans. Like the, uh, reflective belt, you know, police that go around nowadays, you just like lose their mind. If you're not wearing your reflective belt, you're like, do you know where we are? Like you've lost your minds. Was the Russian doctor, was he, was he just using that hole as like his way on and off base? So is that how they, he got around? They ended up a bunch of trailers on the other side of this wall. So you have the hangar. And all of that was on one side of the wall. On the other side of the wall, there were always trailers. And we didn't know it, you know, again, I don't, I don't think that I got a briefing that said, hey, there was a bunch of medical staff over there, but that was their whole area. So you had like Swedish nurses and, uh, <laughs> rough that liked to sunbathe and <laughs> had them over there. And I think there was some Russian medical crew and people like that, but it's just more or less, we don't want people, you know, coming through. This isn't. A place for them to come hanging out. We've got demolitions. We've got helicopters sitting there. There's all kinds of stuff, and we don't want people anywhere near it. So 
don't let anybody through. That was kind of the thing. Life's all about timing. Probably that mortar round had hit earlier and he came cruising through there. Imagine his life might have been shorter. Yeah. <laughs> make it sporty. Uh, so when you guys, you know, I know like obviously Blackhawk down, it highlights that battle and sounds like it's, it's pretty accurate, but you were doing more and it, it wasn't just that one battle. Like day in and day out, you guys are going out there and doing raids trying to capture some of these bad dudes. Can you kind of walk me through what what was the lead up to the battle, right? Because that kind of ended things. But the whole time you guys were there, you're busy doing things, right? Yeah, pretty pretty much. And we, we did a lot of training stuff too. So even even if we didn't have a mission geared up for that day, and you could kind of guess the flow of things based on what was happening. And something that I can't really talk about is because of assets that were being used to, you know, locate people and things like that. But right. um, you could kind of tell like activity was low or activity was high. And if it was high activity, you know, maybe we're going to end up doing something that uh, not, you know, we would come up with some sort of training regime of some sort to go, you know, something, not, not in staff. Um, yeah. I think we did uh, seven total missions and that was from really didn't start until maybe something late August. We got there the 22nd. I remember uh, getting in a gunfight on Labor Day. I think it was the actual Labor Day. It may have been after midnight on Labor Day, Sunday evening or whatever. But uh, similarly, we were going after some lieutenant, uh, you know, one of these warlord people. And we had a a a vehicle blocking position set up at this one major intersection. And we could see... He was coming in and out of the target area and we're kind of the outer perimeter security for them. And, uh, we could see guys leading the target. So we know kind of it's over and, you know, we're ready to wrap up. And about that time, uh, you know, massive gunfire erupts right behind us, like maybe 60, 75 feet behind us. And we were, we were next to a stadium, not the same stadium. There was the picket in the movie that was a different stadium, but we were next to a stadium where ID, uh, Muhammad Farah ID, who was the, the main warlord Mogadishu at that time. And then that's the head guy that we were after in total. Um, but I think he used to give a lot of them speeches from this stadium. So if you look up um, ID and speeches and things like that, I think you'll see the stadium yeah. that I'm talking about. Anyway, a bunch of bad guys got behind a wall and there were like lattice work cinder blocks in this wall. And so they stuck their guns through there and some RPGs and stuff like that. It, they could fire at us, but they couldn't traverse because of the holes in the cinder blocks. They could only do so much. Yeah. And uh, we whipped around and I think, you know, every gun that could have shot was shooting. <laughs> this amazing exchange of gunfire for, you know, the better part of like a minute, minute and a half or so. And miraculously, you know, one of the, one of the first things I did when the gunfire stopped was like, took my hands and started feeling everything and looking at my hands. Cause I couldn't, I'm standing literally in the middle of the street, about 30 feet away. And there's just lead lying everywhere. Yeah. And I thought, you know, surely I'm hit. And about the same time I thought my ears aren't ringing. That's totally weird. And I think just the adrenaline like just push that ear ringing right out. I, I just never noticed my ear train. 
anyway, that was, that was something that happened early on. Um, every kind of subsequent raid that we did, whether it was daytime, daytime being way worse than nighttime, but everything that we did, you could kind of feel the tension building, you know, in the city, it just seemed, yeah. it was never a friendly place. Um, I also don't think that at the time that we got there, I don't think that you would have been beheaded and drugged through the streets. You know what I mean? It would have been like, oh, yeah. Merrick, you know, whatever. I, I don't think it was at that level. So at some point, anyway, you could kind of feel the tension building. And um, those are the things I wish, you know, I think Blackhawk now did a good job of conveying the overall, here's what happened. You know, yeah. um, obviously there was a huge, you can't have a movie with 120 characters. So, you know, we're, we're making a lot of these events happen to one or two characters and things like that. But I, I think it's fairly accurate how things happen, the timeline of how stuff, where things were, when this happened, this was going on here. I think they did a pretty good job of that. Yeah, I can't, I can't even imagine. Well, was there a reason um, doing daytime raids and not doing all nighttime raids? I or think is it's it just, I think it was just, we know where somebody is and we can't, you know, take, uh, you know, a chance on losing, you know, where this guy might be. I think, gotcha. I, I think that's what drove the train. I mean, generally speaking, right. Like you do everything ahead because you got a little bit more of an, um, set the conditions, you know, but there are times, many times when you've got to go and got to go. Um, I can tell you there was never any speech by any of my leadership saying, Hey guys, we're going into a really bad area of town today. You know, <laughs> to me, it was just like every other mission. Um, I think the last daylight thing we did prior to, um, October 3rd, which was when the whole Black Hawk down thing happened, October 3rd or 4th. Uh, you know, there were some random, like, maybe mortar RPG fired at us, some sporadic gunfire, but it was nothing significant. Uh, and I think one of the things that I learned, and I, I don't think a lot of people know this, but that was really America's first engagement with Al-Qaeda. And yeah. we, we had been given intel that day, October 3rd, that there were like 300 Kenyan militia that had just showed up in town and it didn't mean anything to us at the time. Like, I don't know. What does that mean? It's like guys with guns or soldier. I don't know. But, um, looking back on it now, it's like, those were definitely AQ guys. Man, that's incredible. And you think about it. Yeah. And then your, your entire career, you're basically dealing with, with those guys and AQ guys. Yeah. You know, it's like, that was the start of it. Yeah. They were like, yeah. They're like a mosquito that just continually bites America, you know? <laughs> the gnats they just won't go away. Yeah. So back up just real quick, though. So you're telling me the general didn't come out to the helicopters and the Humvees and tell everyone, like, good luck and thumbs up, be safe? I was I was talking with, um, so I was down at Ranger Rendezvous a couple of weeks ago, and one of the guys that was there also, his name is uh, John Bellman, and he, he's also one of the guys getting upgraded to the Silver Star, which is awesome. He was on the search and rescue bird. So okay. their whole function was just like literally fly around. And if there was some incident, they can go and reinforce 
and backup or rescue, you know, if a helicopter gets shot down, whatever, like we have the equipment to do that. And he told me, because I said the same thing. I was like, I didn't know. Nobody ever said you guys are going into like the really hot spot. Uh, nobody told us. And he goes, yeah, we, we heard that. And it, it, that's kind of also the point is like, people will generalize. Oh, I saw this in the movie, which means it's true. And it's like, doesn't mean that that rule applies across the board, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I, I think when I think back to that, I've, I think one of the last podcasts I did, somebody asked me like, what was the big takeaway? What was the big worry once? And I think for me, it would be this, um, Delta force, no doubt was one of the best in the world because it plans and practices and rehearses contingencies. And one of the things that I know happened you know, specifically to my part of the mission that day was we really had no means to deal with community. Like we can't stand in the middle of the street and you know, as a leader, explain to you why we're going and doing minutes, what we're doing next. And there was no place to do that. We also had no contingency plan for that. And so it wasn't something that we understood at the time, but, you know, again, peacetime army, not everybody had health doors. Uh, nobody had health doors. Uh, nobody among you had a radio um, other than a radio that was on the vehicle. So. The only time you had any idea, and well, by the way, there's so much gunfire and explosions and things like that, you couldn't hear the radio anyway. So the flow of information was pretty much zero until a couple of times when we were either back of the hangar or times when there was a lull in gunfire and we could communicate and things like that. But it was very chaotic. And that's just something that I think you could watch the movie and you see all these things happening, but just understand that, like, I had no idea what I was doing for large portions of the battle. Just, just shoot people. Like I could just shoot yeah. people and that's what I can do. So I don't know why, I don't know where I'm going next or <laughs> I see my vehicle left me and I need to go down the street about 300 meters myself to link up with my vehicle. And I did, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, I don't even know what's going on. And we're together and just like looking for a place to go shoot people. Once it kicked off, I mean, that's a great point. Like once it kicked off, did like, what was the objective? Like, was it just to survive and get to the next point? Like who was guiding the fight? And I mean, that's jeez. Yeah. And that, that was the, that was the weirdest part of all. It's like once, once that thing kind of started, it wasn't until we were back at the hangar and it's like, oh, okay, here's what we just did. I, I didn't know what we just did. Um, then it was like, oh, there's some Blackhawks that got shot down. We need to go rescue those guys. So we're going to go drive back out and do that. Okay. But once we were out there, if the plan started to change, that didn't get disseminated to anybody, you know, other than the people that knew that we had communications with what was going on. So for me, that happened it was just kind of like, I am just going to yeah. hold up the flow here, you know? If that happened today, what do you, how do you think it would be different or do you think it would be different? Uh, I would say definitely different just insofar that every guy on the ground now has a radio, you know, and you know, you may even have more than a radio as a means to communicate and be able to see things that, you know, we couldn't even see back then through devices that exist and things like that. So, um, 
I don't think it would ever be the same, you know, and I know things that I did later in other theaters, you know, it, it yeah. was much different and it's yeah. been in many engagements and gunfights other than Mogadishu and I never felt the way that I felt then, you know, even when things got kind of, kind of hairy, I never, I never felt in any of the engagements that I was in, in other theaters, I never felt like I felt in Mogadishu. What'd you feel like in Mogadishu? I mean, just live, you know, kill yeah. or be killed and, uh, you know, no one's going to come out of this a lot. Like, I don't know how we do this without everybody dying. Was that early on in the battle? Cause it was a long, long day. Yeah. I, I think pretty quickly. So for me personally, um, I didn't even understand as an example, um, the first time I started engaging people, we weren't even at the target building. So I didn't even understand that we were finding our way to the target building. And, uh, I, I thought we're in the place we're supposed to be, you know, it, it may not really look that way, but there's already gunfire happening and stuff like that. And yeah. one of the first things that I did was I yelled over to my buddy, one of the, uh, one of the guys that was killed, uh, Don Pillow. And I yelled at him, what are they shooting? 22s? And he probably couldn't hear what I said, but looked at me and smiled. And we had this moment in the street and I didn't realize that I was hearing the crack of the bullet, not the report of the weapon, but because of training being so different and peacetime military and not having the same kind of training, uh, I didn't even understand that I was hearing the crack of the bullet. Wasn't until I saw pieces of wall and sidewalk and things that were right near me that I pieced together that, okay, this is, this is, you know, bullets being shot at us. And that happened very quickly. It wasn't, you yeah. know, minutes of trying to determine what was going on, but it was in that, okay, I'm out. I'm trying to find a place to get cover, try to return fire. And like, I'm not understanding what's going on. Okay. Now I see what's going on and now I can start engaging. It wasn't until I saw him kill that, like the switch got flipped from confusion, uh, being scared to death, uh, to anger. And I mean, fury of men, you hurt one of us, like you are going to pay the price. And, you know, that wasn't too long into the battle, but you know, it, there was still like that kind of overwhelming fear, like there's no way we're going to live through this. And also it was just constant reaction. Like I didn't really have a lot of time to think. It was yeah. more like, oh, there's due to an RPG. Start shooting. Oh, this is going on. I'm like this vehicle just got hit with an RPG. This dude's in the street. Got, you know, like there was just stuff happening everywhere. So it was, it was sensory overload was, uh, you know, all that kind of happened. It wasn't until I saw the first guy get hit and it was like, all right, this is, this is game on. I can't remember. Does the movie portray him, uh, on the 50 cal and he gets hit there or is it in the street? I've seen the movie once. Okay. Yeah. I probably see, I probably see parts of it uh, a few times when it's on TV and my, one of my sons loves the movie. So yeah. He went fair enough for people watch all the time, but I think I've, I've seen it maybe one time. Yeah. Fair enough. 
man, that, that's incredible. Um, I can't, I, I can't imagine, I can't imagine that. Um, so hearing it, you know, I, I saw the movie when I was younger. Yeah. I think that was kind of one of the building blocks, like going to the military and nine 11 happened. So all those things are a culmination of where I am today. So I, I'm appreciative of guys like you who've, who've walked the path and gone out there and really laid it out there on the line. Cause that's what you've done. So thanks. Yeah. No, I, I, I just feel lucky to have uh, lived through it, experienced it, all of that, you know, and so much of anything is, is timing, right? It comes down yep. to right place, right time, wrong place, wrong time, whatever it might 100%. be. And it was the first thing that, you know, in the military that I saw that was kind of like with all the metal that was flying through the air. And I mean, a lot of metal. I think that there were over, they counted over like 900 RPG uh, explosions. I mean, just to give you an idea of like, you know, the scope of how big something was, um, just with the amount of stuff that was flying around, the fact that more guys lived than what, you know, did the fact that, you know, there were like 70 out of the Rangers. I think the Rangers probably had a hundred guys on the ground that day. I think there were 77 purple hearts. Jeez. No maybe 115 Rangers, something like that. So, you know, the fact that like all the stuff that was flying around that, you know, could have hit and, and it kind of solidified something in my mind, which is like, when it's your time, it's your time. And yeah, sure. You can make mistakes that leave you exposed or, you know, whatever it might be. You can, um, but yeah, like there's just such a randomness to it, you know? Yeah, no doubt. The fact too, that and you guys are relatively limited base ops as far as what the support assets are there. And you have that many wounded and that many guys lived on the back end of it versus, you know, later wars where, I mean, I think guys and gals will attest Afghanistan, Iraq, the medical facilities, the ability to get people to level one trauma centers and get them the treatment and save their lives is far better today than it was probably in 1993. Yeah. I, I think that, and I knew that there were, not that there were guys that died that could have lived. I wouldn't suggest that exactly. You know, I think that's an unfair statement. Um, yeah, 100% to your point. I think that they also were trying to triage stuff because it was so overwhelming. You know, this guy might be so far along, we can't afford to take the time because then we're not going to be able to work on five guys that are sustained, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah. So, I think that it also at that time, like nobody had lived with that, right? Nobody, because it was a peacetime military, it's like they were experiencing that for the first time too, you know? Yeah. Like here's a guy in this real land that has a, a hand in his cargo pocket and, oh, it's not even his hand, you know? Like whose hand is this? Where does it, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. They were dealing with it too, you know? Yeah, unimaginable. Now that experience, I know you said from day one, you want to be Delta, obviously going through that, living through that, you're still on the path to become a Delta, Delta guy. So that didn't change obviously with that battle. Uh, no. I, and I think also one of the things that it did, you know, is I got to see those guys in action. Number one, yeah. uh, I got to see how they were equipped. I got to see they did things in a very smart way. And that was one of my big frustrations with, you know, the Rangers in general, and I, I don't want to say anything that would talk down the Rangers. It's different. It's a different level of thing, but it's, uh, you know, doing something 
as smart as you can possibly do it versus, you know, again, not having contingencies, not having some of these things, the line backup plans and things like that. And if I'm guilty of anything, um, being in the military that I was bad at would be probably that I would overthink things and maybe I was thinking about things that my leaders weren't thinking about and maybe that would cause doubt in, you know, what I'm being asked to do because I'm thinking of something a little bit further down the road that they're thinking of. And I, I noticed I've had that regardless of where, well, is it military? Yeah. I had a little bit of that going on and sometimes you're like, oh, wait, you know, uh, we could do this and we'd be a much better way of doing it. Um, so anyway, yeah, it, if anything, it, it solidified that that's where I want to be because I think these guys are doing things in a way that are much smarter than just like marching the fire. Uh, that's a right. completely different answer. Well, I'm sure you can test like it's a numbers game. Rangers, you're dealing with a lot more bodies, kind of bigger bureaucracy for lack of a better phrase to put along with it. But Delta, a smaller team, and to your point, aren't you kind of encouraged to question and ask and think outside the box? And even though if you're the boss and you say something, like it's my responsibility to at least highlight or bring up things that maybe you are not aware about that would affect your decision-making. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think that there are tactful ways of doing that in, in organizations, uh, Delta prides itself on being a bottoms up organization, meaning it doesn't matter how new of a guy you are, you can think of a way of doing something that's a smart way of doing something and you can rehearse it, kind of vet it and everything else. Like, and absolutely can have it. Uh, nothing there is happening. Like here's what you men are going to go do. And this is, you know, it's very much a team leader team figuring out how we want to, you know, crack the nut. And that was something that I definitely, it wasn't bad about the Rangers. It was something that I think I had read a handful of like Rangers in Vietnam books and things like that. And I was expecting it to be more of like that small team, you know, this is what we go do and we sneak around, blow this up and never yeah. shoot guys or whatever and it, it wasn't like that and that's okay it was just different than what i thought it was like. so it really wasn't until i got the delta that i felt like hey here's that thing that i thought it was going to be this yeah. is, you know this is kind of what it's about and uh and I, I enjoy that a lot more for sure and you said you went through selection for delta 99 did i use that term correctly selection yeah fall of 1998 okay 98 and then Couple of years and then nine eleven kicks off. I imagine the the years of Delta pre nine eleven are much different than after nine eleven. Is that a true statement? Yeah, and just just like everywhere, you know, uh, they've got a great budget and a great training program and a you know incredible uh, facilities and everything else. So you know, in terms of that, still was geared up to go do. Uh, I think the difference being is that you know. Delta is always going to be ready to go do whatever it might need to do. And it's bread and butter mission is, you know, the hostage rescue piece and things like that. So it's, it's constantly holding, you know, the tip of the spear. It's constantly doing that, uh, whether there's war or no war. And if there's anything going on, it will definitely be involved, you know? So yeah. you're in the 10th mountain division, just because there's something happening in the army doesn't mean you're getting you know, assigned there to go do something, but definitely in the unit. 
you're going to be going to wherever there's something going on, no matter what. Um, yeah, so it was different than still. And the guys that were legends in the building, you know, were legends for different reasons. I had yeah. the fortune of, even in my training class, um, a bunch of the guys that were instructors. And when I got to meet a bunch of guys that were from Mogadishu were still there. So, you know, it was, it was pretty, pretty cool to see like, Hey, I remember you from, you know, this one incident or, you know, something, yeah. whether it be, you know, hanging out the hangar or whatever it might be, but now I'm on the same team or the same troop as one of the guys that was there. And, uh, that was pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah. It's, I guess serendipitous kind of same deal with Mogadishu and time back to the band. And, you know, I guess it's small world, small, you know, it's circular and it, you always have these ties and these connections. It's like the six degrees of separation, right? Or six degrees of Kevin Bacon. We had this one instructor that would, uh, and it was Chris Ferris who ended up becoming the SOCOM Sergeant Major. I think that was his last position before he retired out of the military, but he was holding the instructors and, and later became like my troop Sergeant Major and I worked with him a good deal. And then our squadron Sergeant Major, uh, and then the unit Sergeant Major. So I, I worked with him for a long time. Uh, when I was in OTC, he was one of the instructors. He would, he would make a point because not all of the instructors had been to combat. And that's kind of weird to think about, you know, now that we've, you know, just spent 20, 20 years at war, but he would make a point and then he would say, yeah, like he's status brass. He knows, you know, right. Am I right? And I'm like, wait, I'm not an instructor. I'm just, I'm just trying to go through the course and yeah. <laughs> be successful. And, uh, but. You know, and that, that kind of, you know, at the time, like there were a whole lot of other guys that had, uh, combat infantry badges and things like that, that, you know, I went through the course. It just wasn't like that. So, um, you know, that was, that was interesting in itself. I imagine cause my experience with that is it comes down right place, right time. As you mentioned, like some people are going to do an entire career and not, you know, go to war or do what they, you know, join, like. I think there is a drive for people who want to get into the action and do it, but you might not just, it might be wrong timing. And I've had buddies who just wrong timing. They show up as a squadron, just leaves. They sit at home. Squadron comes back. By the time it's time for that squadron to cycle back in, it's time for them to move and they just never get to, to get there. Um, and so again, I think it does come down to right time, right place. And you just never know if it's going to happen. The lead into so transition global war of terrorism being a Delta, what was your initial four way into the global war on terrorism? Where'd you, where'd you end up? Or I guess, what can you say? What were those initial couple of years? Like, um, interestingly, um, I first went to Afghanistan. So very early on and, you know, after September 11th, obviously we knew, you know, we were really called to go do something and. You know, as anybody's guess, you know, what are we going to do? What are we, you know, what's our mission? What's our role? That type of thing. And the only thing I really, um, you know, care to share would be going to Afghanistan thinking that it was going to be war. And it was, you know, kind of that thing you brought up earlier. It's like, oh, hey, uh, yeah, guys were running on the main road with a uh, new reflector belt and. You know, uh, what's going on here? Uh, oh, we can't do this tonight because there's too much illumination. 
you know, there was a lot of that stuff. And I, I just remember never thinking like we're at war. It didn't, didn't ever feel that way. Um, yeah. and I don't, without getting specific, I don't know if the role, like what the role was, it, it just kind of didn't make sense. Um, you know, I was a part of the invasion into Iraq and a part of a whole bunch of other stuff that happened there. And from work, it was like, this is war and it was very clear, you know, that, okay, we're not fiddle fucking around here. Like we're, <laughs> we mean business. And that was really, you know, if you ask me like, what, what are the main takeaways? This was kind of like, I don't know, finger drill of sorts. And this was like, okay, game off or we need business. Yeah. It's interesting how it changes too. I did a little bit of time in Afghanistan. I was doing MC 12. So doing intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, supporting a lot of tier one guys doing the nighttime raids and geolocating people. And I remember that time frame, um, some supporting some ops where, either guys on the ground or guys in there who were dropping, they were basically lawyers when it came down to the ROEs and, you know, like confirm your cutoffs around it, no means of escape. And it was just comical. I mean, in the sense of what it is. And then fast forward, um, F-16 deployment and OIR completely different. Like my first drop, like I didn't talk to a single person. It was a smack tasking off a data link message. And it's like, if you see any, any military age male, which like how you're going to identify that target pod or any vehicle destroy it, you know? So it's like a complete role reversal where the gloves were off and you're back at it. But again, it seems it's, it follows these cycles. Cause I know hearing other guys talk about it or reading about it. There are different periods of Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, where it's the hotbed and things are happening and you actually can go out there and do work versus I'm sitting at the largest base in the country and there's all these people and their only jobs are just to move furniture around base. You're like, why, why are you here? What is your existence? Giving out tickets. What are we doing? Speeding here? tickets <laughs> on the file. You're like, what, like, what are we doing here? So one of my, uh, says the record for like the most speeding tickets on the file. And they're, told, <laughs> they're like, he's like leaving the gym, driving as fast as he can to go because there's like something going on and. Yeah. has to get on a bird to fly with, like getting pulled over by the, you know, cops on post. Um, so I, I think part of that in one of the frustrations that we felt, and again, I don't want to like not throw anybody into the bus. Uh, when the war first started, you basically had peacetime military guys that were in positions of leadership at, at a, the highest level. Right. Yeah. So, um, completely different animal and maybe some risk averseness and things like that. And I can't say I wouldn't criticize what they did. I think that that's definitely the way we felt, uh, yeah. whether that feeling was right or wrong, but you know, definitely we felt like this is a risk averse peacetime, you know, leadership that's hamstringing us from doing what we should be doing. I think in a couple of years, transition from one to the next, um, I think that that's sort of a change out. I think that people understood what they need to put folks in there that maybe, you know, will let us, let us free, free wheel burn yeah. a little bit. Well, I mean, I'll back the bus back up if you want and just run right back over them. I think that's, uh, that sentiment 
it's felt across the board, even like eh, maybe a little bit less today, but you know, I got a friend who he showed up in his squadron right to Libya, then back, then to Afghanistan and then OIR Afghanistan. Like all he does is just go like right place, right time. If you want to go fight, cause that's where he's at always doing it. Conversely, you get guys who are in leadership positions that they did 20 combat sorties. It's not to knock them and not say they're not credible because this is a broad statement, but you kind of get the vibe, especially when you hear like, Hey, you're not going to stay in. Like you're not very patriotic. You're like, but this guy has deployed like six times. How many times have you deployed? You know, it's like, you really can't make that argument. So yeah, yeah. again, that's a, that's a general statement. It's not all the way, but I think that does exist probably throughout the military in different spots. I think too, in, in a way of defending those guys, um, you know, imagine spending 18 or 22 years of your yeah. career and it being about your wall locker is squared away. This is the way you roll your socks and your boots aren't sharp. And why are, you know, your uniform look like this. And I'm the garrison commander of, you know, Fort Benning or, you know, whatever way it be. And it's all very political and all very, you know, uh, don't have any fuck ups on my watch kind of thing. Yep. Imagine spending 22 years and being a, you know, a two-star that's now in charge of, oh, hey, what, what, you know, hey, sir, can we, can we go mow this thing down or, you know, uh, right. That's got to be a tough change too, right? And it's, that's why I say it's just, you know, I think the military does a really good job of fighting its last battle. Yeah, that's a fair way of putting it. I think that's a, also a fair way of assessing those guys, right? You're a sum of your experiences and the environment you grew up in. As we've mentioned, you know, the military is really good at starting from the very basic and building you into whatever it wants to build you into. So if you've only known the importance of making sure the eyelets on your boots are black and that's the most important thing, it's tough. I mean, it's tough for some guys to switch that mentality. So I do think that is a good point to bring up that, there's always a give and take. And I think it's important to put yourself in other people's shoes so you can think like them to hopefully maybe influence the decision. Yeah. So, I mean, think about within the Ranger and special operations community, like Vietnam from Vietnam, right? You had nothing until 83 when Grenada happened. And that was, you know, the Rangers and unit operating and doing stuff there, a very short, non-sustained conflict, um, had Panama. Same thing. I think within 30 days, everything was in and out and done and over. Mogadishu. Uh, and then a little bit of conventional stuff that was happening in uh, Bosnia and then later in Kosovo. So if you weren't on one of those things, you know, like you didn't have it. And just to yeah. say that, okay, this guy went to Grenada or that guy was in Panama and this is what he did. He was there for, you know, three days and then came home. Like that's completely different thing than spending 22 years of your career, you know, in this garrison position. It's just so different, you know? It's tough to, I think for most people, perspective, right? Like I'm guilty of this, but you're always worried about the nearest alligator to the boat or what's right in front of your face, what's going to kill you, which is warranted at times, right? Like don't die. Uh, but if you're itching to get into the fight or whatever scenario it might be, like the ability to pull yourself out and take a 30,000 foot look at the entire picture 
if you can, or at least realize that maybe you don't have all the information and go out there and seek to build your picture, your essay bubble a little bit more is a huge asset. And again, not an easy thing to do, but it might help you understand why something is not happening or why you are doing something, being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes or take a step back and try to gain a little bit of perspective on the scenario. Yeah. Again, like if I, if I was guilty of anything, it would be, you know, kind of overthinking situations and maybe being too critical of a thinker and, you know, trying to look and project and predict things that might happen that, you know, whatever it might be. I, I think that there were some situations that that helped me and, and there are definitely situations where that hurt me, but. Yeah, no doubt. You learn. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, it, it, well, that's the goal, right? Learn from it and learn from those mistakes, you know, ingrain them and then don't go out there and make the same mistakes again or learn from other mistakes. You know, that's really where you win, but I got to learn the hard way. Yeah. Um, I, so, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I, I think it's very hard to go into situation. That was one of the things that was interesting to me was, um, I've said this before, and I feel like if I say it again, like if I say it, it will make a lot of people angry. Uh, that is not the intent. I know that there were significant engagements that happened in Afghanistan and in Iraq, so I don't want to take away from anything. I do think that there are a lot of situations that made a lot of people feel more Audie Murphy than what they were. And, um, I think that there are, you know, again, it's like, unless you experience that kind of life or death stint prolong, you know, there's no way out of this situation. I think it's very hard to, uh, you know, understand what that's like to live with that at the same time also. So everything that I approached. Later in my military career, I had this monkey on my back of Bogadishu. And yeah, like I can't just go be cavalier, you know. I can't just like, oh, yeah, just as guns with an AK. Like, okay, one dude with an AK can fuck up a lot of people's days, and then you're in a totally different situation. So don't take that lightly, you know. And some of the really good, effective leaders that I'd had at Delta had been looking at you guys and they understood that. So they dotted all the I's, they crossed the T's, they made sure things were in place and effective before, you know, we're going to go hang ourselves out there. I don't have any issue hanging myself out there. If it's for the right thing, if I know that we're not just, you know, willy nilly, just going to go run into gunfire because I don't feel like that was my job as a dog force yeah. channel. Um, <laughs> You got to do what you got to do to live. But anyway, I, I think the guys were really good leaders there. Um, one of them specifically would like, he would call the QRF, even when we didn't need it, to exercise that. You know, hey, you got to blow out. Like, okay, is it going to take them two hours? Is it going to take them 30 minutes or 17 minute drive from where they're located? How long is it going to take them to get here? And you know, that's an example to me of someone who made sure that when we needed them and we did need them at times, that they were ready to rule and ready to come help, uh, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and you didn't figure drill that stuff. 
And, you know, those, those are the things that I saw that were impressive to me as guys that learned the hard lessons and then were able to apply it. And maybe even at times put the brains on guys that were a little more cavalier and wanted to go hanging out there in a way that maybe wasn't smart. Yeah, I can't, obviously I can't put myself in your shoes. I can, I try to imagine it. But just like hearing the Mogadishu story that day, you know, I, I got, fighting for a day with so many unknowns and basically in my mind, you're I'm probably thinking like, I'm not, I'm not walking out of this, but I'm just going to keep fighting, keep slugging it out because it was, it, that was the real first shootout, you know, in like 20 plus years, you know, like it wasn't, you didn't have all these stories that existed from the global war on terrorism that everyone hears today. So I can't imagine the fear that went into it, but it gives you that, res- I mean, it obviously gave you a respect and knowing that like, yeah, it could be a 12 year old with an AK. You can't discount him. He's still an enemy. He still gets a vote and he can still wreck your world because yeah. he has a killing you know, device in his hands. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. It's not, it's, it seems like some of it gets glorified or glamorous. Or it's like sexy. Um, but at the end of the day, I know you can attest to this, like people die, people get jacked up from this stuff. And yeah, you know, one's like, what, you know, hopefully it was for a good reason and good purpose. And it wasn't because someone was cavalier just to go in there and earn their battle stripes. Well, like, and it's that simple, makes sense. Uh, you mentioned it just because, uh, of having the benefit of like 20 years of war, whereas like the last significant combat event that happened aside from like Tet Offensive and some other things was like the Iberian Valley in Vietnam, which was in 65. And so Mogadishu after it happened was kind of advertised as like, this is the most significant military, you know, engagement since the Iberian Valley in 1965. It's 19, and that's just short of like 30 years, you know, what yeah. years later. Um, it sounded like there was leadership, you know, left over for that and, and people like, yeah. learned and things like that. But, um, yeah, that, that's kind of interesting to me, you know, there just wasn't really a whole lot of that. So it was, it was cool to see that, you know, at least at the unit, there was some, a level of leadership that kind of understood some of those things, put things in perspective as an example, um, started becoming at the Rangers, uh, when you get promoted, sent to the E5 board or, you know, to become a sergeant, they ask you questions and you didn't ever want to be the guy that would be like, Sergeant Major, I don't know the answer to that question, but I will find it out and get back to you. Right. You don't want to be that guy. And I don't think anybody, at least at my level in the Rangers that was in Mogadishu understood that if any woman is in the street pointing out your location to enemy combatants that she is actually acting as a forward observer and therefore an enemy combatant and legally not that it's fun or correct or right to do, but it is completely okay to engage that person. Nobody knew that. So. There are a lot of things that happen like that in Mogadishu where we didn't even know it, even though it was military doctrine, because it was nothing that we had ever talked about. That's what I mean yeah. about like 
hindsight, obviously we can't go back and say, it's 1992, you teach your sports, but it was more important smoking dudes to make them quit and make sure they could run fast than it was to like teach them all the things that maybe they would yeah. need to know on the field right. battle should they ever be there. You know, that's, that's an example of like peacetime army, not smart, doing things, breaking people, you know, stuff like that, just because you didn't have combat as a simulator for stress. So, you know, how do you lead people out that shouldn't be there? You have to make stuff up. But anyway, that, that's an example to me, a, a perfect example of, I have no idea what, you know, that's okay or not okay. I, I don't want to have to do this, so I'm going to do it. Like, yeah. And then do living with that for however many years and probably still don't understand that it's, that it's okay. Yeah, well, you, you mentioned it earlier in the podcast, like we're really good at fighting our last fight, which we've only known now, you know, counterterrorism ops for the last 20 years, really, th you know, 30 years. I mean, that's what we've been focused on. We have been focused on near-peer fights. Maybe that's the next one. Maybe it's not. But nonetheless, you know, it's going to rear its head again where we have to either adapt, pivot, and learn what the new fight is and what the new rules are. Because, again focused on the eyelets right now, you know, and maybe that's right. Maybe it's not right, but it'll change. It always does. So being able to pivot and handle the next situation is important, no matter what it is in life. Yeah. So I, I promised a buddy that, um, we've had this, uh, long going kind of dialogue in it, in it's comedy, but I, I can't set it up the right way, but this definitely has to be a soundbite that we release on social media at some point. <laughs> uh, basically, if I had PTSD from anything, it's that I had to watch Ormond Blondes on MTV in the early nights, like way more times than I could never get back <laughs> and definitely caused some, definitely caused some drama. <laughs> anyway, yeah, we had this thing. He sent me a video of an acoustic act singing, you know, four nine blondes, like whatever the name of the song is, but man, I can, I can never get over that. Yeah. This, that's what I'll release for the promotion of this. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Brad's done a ton of stuff, right? Yeah. But this is where it all went south. What keeps me awake at night to this day, I'll never be able to get the voices out of my head. <laughs> whatever the name of that song was i'll yeah. have to go find it yeah so awesome. he was like you should start like a support group for uh for and be you know vets for or you know something along those lines like support yeah <laughs> we can tie it to the band you know and just yeah. it's just it's a further outreach you know yeah but on that so i will ask you i'll, I'll tee it up with Hey, if you know, if you found 15, 16 year old Brad walking down the street, what advice would you give him? But before we do that, so let you think about that. So you can give these like salient points of wisdom for those who are looking to find you. Can you tell me a little about one, where they can find you and silence in the light, just to kind of reiterate what you're doing with your life now with the band. So that people can go out there and find you and, and support you. I want to make, want to make this guy famous. <laughs> This is dude. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Awesome. If you follow, yeah, if you, if you follow Brad on Instagram, you know, you'll see the dude. <laughs> you'll, you'll see dude. 
Uh, yeah, so uh, Brad Thomas official, Silence and Light official on Instagram. I think we've got Facebook and all that stuff. If you Google uh, Silence and Light, you'll find our music. You would get our music anywhere you get uh, your music, whether it's Spotify, uh, Apple Music, iTunes, wherever. So we're taking just that it was I, I didn't want to start my own foundation or something where I had to ask people for money. I, I wanted money to be a completely transparent thing. And I have a hard time to say, oh, give me your money so that I can keep the charity. So uh, basically, you buy a song, you stream our music, and we're taking 100% of our profits from music royalties and getting those to two different charitable organizations. And uh, right now, we're contributing to uh, Warrior's Heart, which is a physical, you know, facility in Texas. I think they're standing up another facility, but it it gets dudes uh, clean. And, you know, one of the side effects from PTSD is people that have alcohol and substance issues. So the thing that I love about Warrior's Heart is that after they get you clean and you get therapy, they also use art as a form of therapy, whether it be nice. music, uh, painting, writing, sculpting, welding, you know, whatever it might be. And that's, that's super near and dear to me. And it's also not just for veterans. It could be from anybody, uh, struggling with PTSD. You could be a SWAT officer. You could be, you know, it doesn't have to be some high speed commando. Uh, and the other is Marie Raider foundation. And that's something that gives kind of directly to, uh, you know, families of Marie Raiders that were lost and it can help fly them across the country and, you know, put their family up while their memorial service is going on and things like that. So it takes care and it does a lot of stuff. Um, but that's, I, the both of those are awesome. Originally each band member was going to have like his own charitable organization that he could talk about. And that's kind of the way it started. And then it turned into like, I do all the, the media stuff. So I was <laughs> like, well, I could handle one, maybe two. And, and that's about yeah. it. But, uh, so we're taking another percent of our use royalties and contributing to those two organizations. Um, and, and as well, it's not so much necessarily about financial contribution as it is too about, you know, helping spread the word that there's this thing that exists. And I know things have come full circle because I know people that have heard about Warrior's Heart that then come back to me and said, man, I, I like heard about this thing. I ended up there. This is what it did for me. And they're like, I'm still alive because of it. And that's, that's a pretty, like, that's, if this reaches two people and it helps one yeah. person that, that I'm happy about that. So I'll, I'll continue doing this for as long as I can. Um, we're getting ready to record second album and we, we may switch up which organizations we give uh, royalties to, uh, people ask how they can help the band. And I'll tell you, like it costs 35 is out of pocket to record our first album. Um, that's anything from having to travel to hotel rooms, to eating food while you're, you know, all of that stuff. And if people want to help the van, they can purchase, uh, any of our merchandise and that help, you know, helps us be able to pay for some of the things it doesn't even, and it will cover our costs unless, yeah. and once this thing goes gold, uh, <laughs> well, we've got a bunch of exciting stuff coming up. We're kind of, uh, rebranding slightly and, and instead of being like, oh, those are the vets, you know, we want to be a normal functional band. Uh, we want, you know, a lot of our merchandise to be something that people can relate to, maybe has a little bit of depth, but 
also isn't, you know, so veteran and everything else. So we've got a publicist that's going to be coming on board and she's going to help spread the word, you know, from also the veteran community, but, you know, to the mainstream music community too. So, awesome. uh, and our mission won't change. We're, we're still planning to take, you know, hundred percent of every tribute back. So that's incredible. So Brad Thomas official and silence in the light official yeah. Instagram predominantly, right? Yeah. And if you, if you Google silence, all right, I mean, we're all over everything there. It's going to take me to where either music or podcasts or, uh, other stuff that I've done. It's all articles for, uh, off of your die or havoc journal that I've written, you know, all kinds of stuff out there. So, Perfect. um, you asked me the question about what would, uh, yeah. the old me tell the young me. And yep. I wouldn't say this, uh, the young me didn't want to hear what the old me had to say. And the young me would have done, you know, everything probably exactly the same. Like I got no regrets. I, I'm a person that lives every day today as good as I can live it. I would much rather, and I've had this conversation with you offline too, but I would much rather talk about things I'm doing now today than the things that I did, you know, 27 years ago or 12 years ago. Um, that's a part of who I am today, but that's not who I am today. Right. So, you know, we could sit and talk music here for hours and hours, <laughs> but I, I also love talking about the veteran stuff and I, I love being able to help and contribute that way too. But, uh, yeah, so yeah, I, I wouldn't have wanted to, you know, you could have talked to me. I probably would have found it interesting. I could talk to myself, right. But I, it, in one ear and out the other end, I, I'm a person that couldn't sit in school. I've had to get out there and do, you know, yeah. I, I don't learn that way. I don't, oh yes, teacher. You know, I don't do that. Yeah. Give me the, like, I want to drive a car. You know, I don't, I don't want to sit on the simulator and <laughs> good for around them. Let's do this. No, let's do it. Yeah. No, I love it. Brad, thanks for joining me on the podcast. For those listening, I think you're going to hear more, Brad. We got some things in the works, which I'm excited about. I think we threw a line in the sand, but uh, it'll just be a teaser that, again, Brad Thomas will be uh, someone you'll hear more about. Check out Silence in the Light, doing some incredible work out there. Again, you can Google them. I'll throw them on the Afterburn podcast. But again, you can find Silence in the Light and find Brad Thomas out there if you just do a Google search for sure. So, Brad, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. I really enjoyed it, man. And thank you. And I, I, I've said this to everybody that, uh, those podcasts and you've got a very significant podcast and, uh, you know, I know that might not be the typical audience, you know, uh, that I've spoken to before and, and, you know, I'm intrigued by your community and that's something that, you know, I, I'd love to get into, but what you're doing too is every bit and significant is what I'm trying to do with the fan and, and you're giving people like me a platform you know, to a lot of people. And I appreciate that. The band appreciates that. That's, that's something you're doing a hell of a service too. So thank you. I appreciate it. It's fun to do. And again, it's, yeah, I think it's a team effort, right? And we all play our part and, um, yeah, you know, started this, right. The whole goal is just be able to go out there and share information and hopefully, you know, someone hears something that makes your life a little bit better. And in the end, if it's just one person, I think it's worth it. So, um, it's kind of cool to see this whole thing evolve. I've joked about it before, but you know, I couldn't spell podcast now two years ago. So it's been a learning process to get to this point, which has been cool. And it's been fun and meeting people like you, 
Um, again, like our world's just kind of become smaller and connected and to share these stories and capture these stories and experiences, I think is, it's, it's very humbling to be a part of for me. Awesome, man. Thank you. Awesome. Brad, I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, if you're looking for additional content and you want to support the podcast, you can always swing over to patreon.com backslash the Afterburn podcast, or at a minimum, just drop a rating review over on iTunes. Thanks for listening. And until next time.